You are listening to The Cycling Podcast. Hello and joining you on December the 13th, 2023, the 34th birthday of Time Magazine's freshly anointed person of the year, Taylor Swift, and of a man who in 2023 had a whole book named after and dedicated to the pseudo-religion created in his name. That is Landismo and its divinity, Michelanda. My name is Daniel Freiber and I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we will walk with you into the smouldering flames of the hottest news story of the last few days in professional cycling. Indeed, when a few weeks ago we made a date with Bora Hansgrohe's head of sports, Rolf Aldag, we anticipated that the winter transfer we'd spend most time discussing would be that of Primoz Roglic from Jumbo Visma to Bora Hansgrohe. On a wild last Saturday afternoon, however, Jumbo Visma stunned the cycling world by announcing that they had signed the 20-year-old Belgian sensation Kian Oterbrooks on a four-year deal as of now, a year before his contract with Bora was due to expire. Only for Bora to respond an hour later that Oterbrooks' agreement with them still stood, and for the rider's agent in turn to refute that. It's got even messier over the last couple of days with suggestions, or maybe a better word is leaks, to the effect that Oterbrooks had been bullied at Bora. Now, when I headed to see Rolf Aldag at Bora Hansgrohe's winter training camp billet just outside Palma in Mallorca this afternoon, I was afraid he wouldn't want to broach the Oterbrooks saga, but I needn't have worried. As ever, Rolf was in expansive and insightful form about what's occurred over the last few days and much besides. From Bora's frustrating 2023 to their hopes of winning the Tour de France with Roglic in 2024. From doping confessions Jan Ulrich and living in the past to Mark Cavendish and Cavs present and future. You'll hear all of that in just a second. Before you do, just a quick word to say that next week's episode will be an end of year bonanza, hopefully featuring many of the guests you've enjoyed hearing from over the last few months. And now this short commercial message from Lionel. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2, the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today. And if you've been listening to the cycling podcast for a while, you'll know that I've got a Carew 2 on my own bike. And if you'd like one too, you can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of every Hammerhead Carew 2 at hammerhead.io. All you need to do is enter the promo code CYCLE at checkout to get the free heart rate monitor with the Hammerhead Carew 2. We'll put those details in the show notes. Now, what sets a Carew 2 apart from other cycle computers? Well, it does all of the things you would expect it to do. It will tell you uh, how fast you're going. It gives you your cadence, your power output. Uh, but it's the climber feature that really sets it apart for me. It's revolutionized my approach to the hills over the last couple of years because rather than fearing the gradient changes, I've got the information at my fingertips. And so I know if the steep bit is still to come or whether the worst is behind me. And it's helped me to judge my effort a little bit better when I'm climbing. So the climber feature really is like having a little road book on your computer giving you the route, giving you what's coming up ahead. And, well, it's a versatile piece of kit too. Say you're out riding in an area that is unfamiliar to you, you can find a coffee shop along your route or just off your route. 
and follow the line to your uh, destination. Uh, but if you do go off course because of human error, because I can tell you that uh, the Hammerhead Carew 2 won't go wrong, but if you do go off course, it doesn't do that thing where it tells you to turn around or go back on yourself. It will just seamlessly get you back onto track. So it's really the ideal cycle computer when you're riding on your familiar territory or if you're exploring further afield. So if you'd like to get a Hammerhead Carew 2, you can get a heart rate monitor with it for free by using the promo code CYCLE. Go to hammerhead.io, put both of the items into your shopping cart and then use the promo code CYCLE to get the heart rate monitor for free. Oh, and before I hand back to Daniel and co., if you are planning to ride on Sunday, that's December the 17th, with Laurent Audebert in Hertfordshire, tackling the 12 Hills of Christmas route, they are leaving from the Hub Cafe in Redbourne, Hertfordshire, at 9am, and they'd love to see as many friends of the podcast and cycling podcast listeners kitted up and ready to ride as possible. So that's Sunday, December the 17th, at the Hub Cafe in Redbourne, Hertfordshire, 9am start. So, Rolf, last time I was in this hotel, well, and you were also there, I think it was about 10 years ago, you won't remember, um, but I think it was probably the last year of HTC. You, of course, were a very influential figure at HTC. Um, I was looking back, I was refreshing my memory about just how successful Rolf um, HTC were earlier today. And some of the, some of the figures were quite, were quite remarkable. Um, I've just got it here. Um, 318 victories in five seasons. They won 85 races in 2009. But you told me your memories are pretty foggy of that. When I said we might talk a bit about HTC, you said you'd unfortunately forgotten to take your ginseng this morning, so you might not remember um, very well. Is that the case? Is it all quite foggy when you think back to that now? Ah, uh, you know, you always think about the, you know, like in general, um, you glorify things in the past. So, yeah, that was cool. That was cool. But, you know, if you get detailed questions, it's it's many mm. times hard to answer. The figure 85 victories in one season always sticks up because, you know, every time somebody thinks he's successful and say, yeah, mate, but you're still missing 30 to our mm. <laughs> record setting in and uh, uh, in that year. But, you know, also to be realistic, of course, it was different times, mm. it's different racing and uh what we won was also not, obviously not like we didn't win the Tour de France or anything similar. We were really good in executing like um, sprint stages with Scriper, with Cavendish, with Matt Goss and those type of riders and then still had a lot of quality in time trialing. I think we won 17 time trials mm. or something one year. Um, but yeah, it was, the, you know, to be accurate, it can't be after uh, 2011. Because that was the last years oh, of HTC, yes. so yeah. it's more than ten years. Yeah, even yeah. Like time is flying when you're having fun. Rolf, I was also reading back some of the things you said to me um, back then, and you talked about how sort of necessity was the mother of invention. Sometimes um, you, you talked about, for example, sometimes in a normal team you might have a guy on 150 thousand a year, and he was doing, you know, he might be doing okay, and often just as a matter of course, as a sort of reflex that those guys would get their contracts renewed and HTC often 
that you simply didn't have the money to keep working in that fashion. And consequently, this meant you had to make difficult decisions and explore the market for opportunities. And it, it made me think that, well, how different that is to, we've just finished the season 2023 when Jumbo Visma have dominated the Grand Tours and they've won um, all three Grand Tours. We might talk a bit about a bit more about Jumbo Visma and their signings in a minute. But um, it, it is quite different to how teams seem to obtain success in 2023. The game has very much changed. You couldn't do that anymore, could you? You couldn't adopt that kind of money ball approach and have the same extent of success. Yeah, that is indeed very, very difficult now. I mean, the um, the quality of the top teams, it's, it's, it's so close that you need to compete to them by having also a strong team. So it's not like that one person show that you get lucky with the talent and you can really challenge them because then, you know, they outplay you by numbers. And uh, so it is quite difficult. And also, like, everybody is doing his homework now. Um, with these big budgets, it's, you know, everything is possible for, for a lot of teams. You know, for the leading teams, is money is no limitation. Um, so in the past, you know, it was more like cleverness dominating. Um, now it's just simply uh, money dominating. So a lot of people say, like, in football, to say, yeah, but the money doesn't score goals, but actually it does. And the money buys uh, your victories in cycling as well. That's very obvious. Um, and uh, since they're all picked up, you know, since everybody is like working on details now, that niche is closed. So then it is about like we all try to get the best out of our talents. While in the past we were laying on that talent, purely talent, to say, well, that will score results. Now every team is developing that talent to the maximum. So like uh, we get 100% out of it and so does every other team. And then ultimately the more expensive bike riders are also the more talented bike riders and they end up in the big mm. teams. And resources in other ways as well. For example, you've now got Primoz Roglic on, the, on your team. I don't know whether you have the resources, for example, to send eight riders with him to altitude camps. Uh, resources matter in that respect. And that's one thing that I've heard riders say this year about Jumbo Visma. For example, the issue of altitude camps before Grand Tours, they can send a huge group of riders away, which is maybe even different. That's maybe even taking it a step further than even what Sky were doing. Yeah, and it's not only about the riders. I mean, you know, we uh, joined them at the same hotel and tied it there for altitude camp and... And we also had seven riders up there while they had 12 up there. But we also had like, I think, four staff members up there while they had 12 up there. And um, and then, of course, you know, it is much easier to say, uh, our guys, well, do it by passion, do it by the heart. But they, you know, have to have to have 18 hours working days. And, and you can do that for so long, but you cannot like squeeze them out like a lemon. And this is clearly, clearly where we also like, you know, quality is one thing, but quantity does matter there. So sending 12 riders up there with that number of support stuff, it's just, it's just, you know, different. And for sure, if, if out of 12 riders, eight end up performing, you know, it's different than out of seven, you know, you also have uh, some riders where you say like, it's just not going to work what we planned and uh, and then you come short in in the numbers of support riders for the leader and so on and so on so it does make a big difference of course but and also to be fair you know like these teams also plan it in a clever way mm. it's, uh, they have the money but they also spend it wisely now with Roglic on board I mean last year you and I had a conversation about how this team had 
pivoted really and become a Grand Tour team and you had lots of good Grand Tour riders. You had Jai Hindley who had just won the Giro d'Italia. You didn't necessarily have a favourite for the Tour de France. Now you have someone who will be in the conversation to win the Tour de France. Are you already finding that when you have these conversations about, for example, altitude camps, I know that Primoz has already gone to um, Morgan Hill, I think, in the States. Even on, well, already you're realizing that it takes another level of, of resource, that, that you, you're having to put more into all of that than you even were last year. Uh, well, I mean, we are aware of that. I mean, you know, it's it's pretty much is, uh, it's an outstanding bike rider, but it's also a big investment. And I think, you know, you cannot have that as a standalone to say, well, we pay his salary and then we expect him to win the Tour de France. So everybody has to grow. But then we're still different to what uh, Jumbo was able to do because realistically, you know, then still aiming to win the Vuelta and the Giro and still, you know, being top, top class uh, in the classics is going to be super difficult for us. So um, we have to have a little bit more of a focused approach to, to the Tour de France there. Can we manage that with what we have on board with our resources? Yes. And anyhow, the last thing we want to do and we should try to do is like copy uh, Jumbo Visma because, you know, you always feel a copy is never as good as an original. So we try to create another original um, with maybe a few different uh, focus points on um, doing things different and uh, and hopefully then succeed at the end. Can you give me any examples, things you'll do different or is that trade secrets? No, but I think in, in general, you know, we're probably less uh, of purely number driven i think we uh, we within the team we are like more emotional so you know i think we uh, we do get a lot of motivation out of like really our our purpose our goal of winning winning the tour de france and living by emotions we might do an extra loop here and there rather than saying like we have to do you know this and this number and we have to these these and these days and uh, and I do think, you know, that brought us the big success in the Giro, that emotion, that willingness of like throwing everything in there. And uh, with the Torino stage to say, well, that was not, you know, just purely by we can spend 5,000 kilojoules till that climb and then we mm. can ride 6.3 watts up there. We have a scientific department, of course, you know, we have a performance team who does all of that. But I think on top of it, it's really important that, you know, like that you enjoy what you do and just not become a daily business. So once it becomes a daily business, I think uh, then we are not outstanding anymore. So and, and, and I do think it's super important for us to, you know, catch people with emotions and, and get them motivated because there is a difference to say I do my job um, to expectation or I do my job with passion. Is that something that you've been in the team now uh, three or four years, um, two or three years? Um, is that something that you particularly have emphasized and you particularly feel that you've brought as well? Now, also for me, it's a learning process because, you know, like you think like uh, you think Grand Tour is um, a bit less emotional. You know, like where I came from was, of course, a lot of sprinting where it's like it's all or nothing. My grand tour is like as long as you don't lose, you win. And, you know, I thought it's it's a little bit like, well, scale it back, um, you know, calm down. It's it's a lot, uh, you know, just more like the stability, the steadiness. But I also like learn from that to say, what well, you have to have these days where, you know, where you have to go out there to say, well, we're willing to, we're absolutely willing to lose. We, you know, we would accept it to be, uh, to be a defeat. 
but we aim to win and uh, and i do think it's still a learning process for all of us and uh, so you know we grow together in this and i'm just thinking of some of the places you've worked before and some of the successes you've had before take a rider like mark cavendish he's someone that epitomizes how emotion still plays a big role doesn't he yeah yeah absolutely i mean if you just see pure numbers from mark you would probably you know, I Kick would have out. stopped earlier <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and uh, you know, never won any any stage in the Tour de France. We also see in, in his example that it's it's quite risky because, you know, if you live from these high emotions, you also need to give people like that breathing space where they where they come back down to earth. And, and because, you know, it's just not working 365, like live on a high uh, in the clouds and, uh, and then you might crash hard. So, you know, like... That's uh, it's a very specific case, and I think you know people build on that. People look up for 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 these kind of people, but it it also is is a little bit tricky. That's for sure. Like, uh, and Mark is a good example where it can go always. He's mellowed now. I listened to a podcast last week in which he said he's a different man now. You know, <laughs> he's very he's very um, in control of his emotions now. So we don't need to worry about that. Rolf. Um, I mentioned Jumbo Visma. We're going to um, talk about Jumbo Visma a, a little bit in a minute. Um, but they're going to be called Visma Lisa Bike next year. Now, again, in doing a bit of research for this interview today, I came across or I, I was reading back a piece I wrote about you years ago, profile, about your your father having leased your you a bike when you were growing up. Um, your first racing bike, he leased it to you for seven Deutschmarks a month. Is that right? That is right. But that was via the uh, the club which was a super nice offer. So it was really like, um, I, I've done like judo for like nine months and then I stopped and the next idea was like, let's go for cycling. And they were like, yeah, but we're not going to buy you a bike now. And then you're going to end up again for in, after nine months. Also had two older sisters. So, you know, they wanted to be fair. And then the the club did offer that that possibility to say, well, you know what? We have like 15, 20 bikes that you can rent, uh, that you can lease, and that leasing rate would be one percent of the of the overall value of that bike, which was seven hundred fifty German marks, so seven seven uh, seven German marks a month. They would even, you know, deduct that from the buying price if you want to buy that bike. So you know, um, super nice. So it would have been six hundred ninety three after one month if I want to buy it. Well, I really did get lucky with that option because in the first year I needed four different bikes because I did grow from frame size 52 to 58 okay, literally where right. I ended up, I do believe I, I grew like 16 centimeters right. or something in one year, yeah. which wasn't pretty really good for my spine and for my curved back now. Uh, and to establish that, uh, you know, growing period while you are like always sitting like really, you know, down at the front on the bicycle. But uh, you're also doing an apprenticeship in a tool making factory, I think. I don't know if that was the same time, but that probably didn't help your back either. <laughs> yeah. yeah, standing on my working bench the, the whole time. Um, that was like probably my third year when I was cycling the third year. Then I started working for three and a half year there, learning that job, um, becoming a tool mold maker. As hard as it was, I wouldn't want to miss it because, mm. you know, achieving that and getting through that to say, you know, even at that time, we already had guys to say, well, I finish, uh, I go to school, I come back at one, I go training. While I came back at 3.30, standing eight hours on my legs, I think the first training camp I ever did was when I turned professional. 
to then I played ice hockey. It was running. I was doing a lot of stuff, which was super, super strange that the first time I came actually to Mallorca, you know, well-known cycling island mm. for Germans in my third year profession. And they all thought I was joking when they said, like, ah, we go, you know, we go out to Cineo and we go mm. over to Selva and we climb up to Inca. And I had absolutely no mm. idea. Think back, there was no mobile phone or anything or navigation system or, you know, a head unit on your, on your bicycle uh, where you could find the roads. And like, they would not believe me that it was third year profession and I've never been on a training camp on Mallorca. So it was, you know, like all that process running through the factory um, learning process was was tough that time, but definitely good lessons for life. Times have changed a lot and professional cycling has changed a lot. And again, in our conversation last year, we talked about how the new generation is maybe motivated more by opportunities than money. And one thing that's sure is that they have different experiences and different um, points of reference to your generation. In a role like yours, in an important role in a sports team, is it something that you have to be aware of as time goes by that the age gap between you and them gets bigger and bigger and that you have to make a special effort to sort of plug in, attune yourselves to their reference points? I mean, you know, for sure you realize that and like um, the way to do it for us is also, you know, bring in younger people into management and bring into younger mm. people into, you know, sport directors. If you see, you know, we've done changes again. So Shane Archbold directly from the bike into the car now. Bernie Isaac, Gasparotto, they all still have that, you know, modern approach. Like, you know, Gaspar was was planning his altitude camps himself already, you know, years, years over years over years. So he doesn't know what it means to yeah. sit on that on that mountain while our experience in the past was like 115 race days. So yeah. how can I get the base right in, in November, December, January with the, so I make sure I have 10,000 kilometers till I start any intensity because from then on it's own intensity. So it's a learning process and I can't also motivate them anymore with standing in front of the bus at the meeting and say like, well, this is what when, when Freddie Martins attacked Roger de Flam because they literally don't know who I mean, they are. You're talking about Fabian Cancellara, <laughs> most of them will shake their head. Yeah, you know, yeah. it is like that. So, um, so, you know, like there are different ways and, and like trying to understand them is super important. So I have to grow like, you know, um, with, with the sport, um, I have to develop there, but then it's also a good way to, to accept that we are getting older and the gap, like you said, is getting bigger and then bring in, bringing like an intermediate step. So, you know, mm -hmm. I still have the experience of doing 31 Tour de Frances, but then I have to have people say, okay, you know, how do we transfer that now in my knowledge and their experience and get the best out of, out of these young kids. In recruiting younger people that intermediate step that's one way are there other ways i mean i don't know do you download tiktok and <laughs> i mean um do you have to go through at the end of every season do you i, I i'm thinking about this because it also applies to me it applies to you know other people in the media as well sometimes we have to kind of give ourselves a bit of a reset and realize that people aren't consuming media in the same way anymore and you re it's a, a real effort it takes a real effort to to step out of your own shoes and into the shoes of that generation. Um, are there other things that you do to consciously just try to, I mean, you have a daughter and well, you have two children as well. I guess that helps. Um, yes. I mean, TikTok, I was probably like <laughs> really, really early. TikTok, you okay. were really early because I had a bat with my daughter. You know, she, she found it somewhere, somewhere. 
And then I said, like, look, I will have more clicks than you in no time. And I was standing on the balcony filming a lake, putting a song underneath, and I had 42 likes and whatever, three hours for, I don't know, no reason. So I wouldn't understand the concept, but at least I could, you know, handle it. And otherwise, you know, like if you try to find me on social media and being active there, you will fail because I learned the very hard way uh, with one tweet. You did tweet. one tweet. You did one. What was it about? It was about it was about the Sagan incident. It was the Sagan Cavendish uh, incident yeah. at the Tour de France. And I only which... remembered this because it's in Mark's documentary, isn't it? I okay. think. Yeah. 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 And it was really like that one tweet and I was kind of like, uh, you know, coming from that crash, being super worked up and of course emotional and learning that lesson so it's just not good to carry emotions into social media and then mark was sitting there his shoulder was uh, was gone um you know and we had that conversation and then i just put out something like pure violence let's see what uci is gonna do and then they took him out and then like you know like half of cycling world uh, because it was 50 50 wasn't it some said like peter's fault some said mark's fault anyhow 50 percent promised to kill me whenever they see me next time so then i deleted my twitter account in but, the next five minutes but you can still show your daughter that tweet and say look how many likes it got i don't know how many <laughs> likes it got probably quite a lot probably a few retweets as well it's funny because i'm also on instagram and i think uh, i have a thousand followers yeah. was never you ever never. posting anything so wow. it's kind of like you know people still uh, That's I don't the know, magnetism expect of me the ma to do another mistake on yeah. social media <laughs> the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science Rolf that wasn't all that preface those first 15 minutes of conversation that wasn't all a, a, a cunning roost to get you to talk about Keanu to Brooks but it does make me think a little bit of the situation that is developing. Um, we're talking about young riders. 20-year-old rider Keanu Brooks was one of the sort of revelations of last year. He was at the Vuelta España. You were at the Vuelta España for the first half, if I remember correctly. He finished eighth. Um, in the last couple of days, well, I think yesterday, he reported not to your training camp, but to Jumbo Visma's training camp. This after, well, two very notable press releases, three, in fact, at the weekend. Um, one from Jumbo Visma saying they'd signed him for the next four years. One from Bora Hansgrohe saying that he still had a contract until the end of next year. And then another one from his agent saying that his contract with you guys, Bora Hansgrohe, had been terminated on the 1st of December and that um, legal proceedings had been started, initiated to, well, to ensure that he could ride for Jumbo Visma next year. And um, Rolf, was this a big surprise to you, particularly on Saturday? Um, or how much did you know was going on in the background um, with a view to him maybe changing teams? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, from external, it looks a little bit like, hey, this is, uh, you know, this is off-season entertainment. Like, let's buy some popcorn and, yeah. you know, like a big uh, big bottle of Coca-Cola, lean back and, you know, stay tuned and stay online and follow that whole drama. Um, so I do think it has a high level of entertaining. I also understand just like this time of the year when not too much happening, it gets even more intention, attention than, than it would get. Like if races go on, you know, it's just a different focus now. Um, yeah, being involved there, of course, is not super cool to say, you know, we we have a planning done, we have a race schedule done. This is like my job. So, you know, like we have to be clear. It's like I'm not like the guy who's doing contracts. Yeah. Obviously, that's why for me, 
you know, don't want to comment on contract uh, itself, but for sure, you know, there's a planning. For sure, there's like, you know, bikes in service course, and the closing is is uh, is ordered, it's ready, it's done. That was all happening for, for 2024, him, for of course. Yeah. So you know, like, so um, we we assumed and we expect, especially on the you know operational side from our side, to say, well, he's part of the team and. Uh, you know, there was there was no other expectation then uh, than that. It's like so, of course, and it hits you like a hammer. That's for sure. On and Saturday or even before Saturday, did you? Yeah, know? no. Like, I mean, like you know, like it's 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 a little bit like I, I'm certainly not the guy who spends too much time with scratching his head about rumors or mm. like what might have happened, what might not have happened. For me, it's like pretty clear to say, well, we do plan a camp, we do not plan different, and and I was maybe still like to say well if i have a contract i either find a solution and we all like uh, know what the status is or i show up where i'm supposed to show yeah. up so um so yeah from you know from my side then of course it is kind of like we plan everything we plan meetings we plan race schedule we uh, you know we have everything in in our in our um administration systems and they're set up and ready to go Rolf, I said that you were with him on the Vuelta a España. That wasn't that won't have been your first experience on a race with him. Um, he's, he had been at the team for two years. But some of the rumours that have made it into the press over the last 24 hours have regarded the Vuelta a España and how he felt at the Vuelta a España. Even at the time, there were murmurs of discontent. That there was a day when um, he sort of got left behind. I think Nico Dentz and um, Vlasov... Uh, found themselves in a group um, down the road. And he said things to the Belgian media after that. There was also the incident, the Chrono des Nations that he did at the end of the season where he was kind of critical of the time trial equipment or his, his um, spare time trial bike. He also talked about needing the team needing to do more work with him on time trials. Um, but just talk to us about the Vuelta a bit um, and your experience with Kian there and how unhappy he was and, well, maybe address these reports of him feeling alienated from his teammates and maybe even being bullied by his teammates. Well, you know, like I, I think in general we have to understand as well, you know, he's 20 years old, he's very young, um, but he's performing in the World Tour against the, you know, like very experienced riders. So the stress level, of course, is super high for everybody. It's like doing the first Grand Tour is always an extra layer of stress because you have never done it. And everything that comes after after eight days is is new to, to everybody. And uh, so it's difficult to really define expectations. Um, while I do think, you know, like he had a he had a guy staying with him all the race, um, so we did make him a, a co-leader there. So you know, we have Alex Vlasov uh, and Nico Dent would stay with him, and we okay. had Jonas Koch dedicated to okay. him. So you know, I, I I just can't see where I would say like, well, there was a, a massive mistake done there. How the race develops, how the individual stages did happen, um, you know, like that's something that that we can have a million different opinions mm. about it but we do have a basic strategy and that was laid out to everybody so you know maybe just to describe the the general situation for that understanding so we're not going there and knowing every day is a new surprise what we're going to plan to do there's a performance plan um in place where we really think of like what do we do and how we do things and that's addressed and that's shared with the riders so it doesn't come by surprise 
And I, I do think if we if if we look back to say what was planned and how were things ex- executed, then I don't really think you know we have to look into the mirror and say we've made massive mistakes. And uh, so therefore, you know, like I think like I really want to keep the emotions out there mm. um, because to me it really develops in a in a, in a direction where where I just find it hard to um, you know to see that emotions drive the whole process and it seems to be like that you know nations are divided about it to say well you know belgium takes one stand so to say and 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 it's just not right so i do think you know like now right now it's like from our side it was addressed uh, i think the team said it ralph dang uh, ralph Mm -hmm. dang said it it's like we have a we have a certain expectation we do believe we have a contract and let's you know figure out the facts and put the facts next to each other. And then I think, you know, like this is why we have legal systems, isn't it? Mm. It's really like, I, I think we never come to a conclusion via uh, media discussions. Um, so therefore I think from our, for our decision, I don't really, from our standpoint, I don't really think it makes any sense to comment on everything that he might say. He comments on mm. something that how we see it. For me, like I try to stay cool on this. Like I really try to, you know, not get, super emotional about it and they say well you know let's have like an objective um you know court um room where we present our point he presents his points and let's see what you know how it's going to be ruled and i think it's the ruling is quite interesting and important to understand now what does that mean for the whole world of cycling especially with such long contracts now being signed Exactly, because, you know, like, this is like, you know, our understanding is the contract is a contract and you read the regulations. There's a way out there, yes, if everybody agrees to it. And I think this is really like, you know, like, I'm really not happy that it happens with a 20-year-old um, right now uh, because, you know, like, he doesn't have that experience and it's, it's, it's all about his future much more than about our future. So it's going to be, you know, mm. but it's important for the whole sport. Because if contracts have zero value anymore, um, I think you know we have a problem. We have a problem there, and you have seen a lot of team manager comment on that to say, well, I think where everybody feels a little bit to say, okay, what are we going to do now? Mm. So how is that going to be ruled, and how do we move on from here? Um, and that's going to be the interesting part, I think. And uh, I think whoever rules it has to be aware of it, the consequences. Rolf, I'll just ask you two more things on this, then we'll move on. Um, just on Kian, I spoke to you during the Vuelta and you well, talked in kind of glowing terms about, you said he's a role model of modern cycling. It's that He'd given this interview a few months earlier where he talked about weighing his food, I think. And and you'd said, well, it's, it doesn't seem like a burden to him. He you know, checks his heart rate, weighs his food. And that's, a, that's different from other riders. They seem to do it because they have to do it. Whereas he doesn't want to go into any day of his life without a plan, you said to me. Um, just generally... Mm, how did you feel that he had integrated into the team and, and what was it like to work with him? Well, he's very intense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, meaning that, like, within the team and also working with him, he's, he's really, really intense. So he's very time-consuming, but in a positive way. So, you know, it's not really that he calls you about, like, uh, whatever, the weather or, like, you know, political situation in the, in the world. It's very specific questions that he does have. Uh, he's very demanding. He's not just happy because you give him an answer. He's happy. Uh, he's a bright boy. If you if he understands the answer, if yeah. he accepts the answer. Um, so you know, from from that point to say, well, you know, this is that 
presents modern cycling, I guess. And uh, and within the team, of course, you know, like it's, he's challenging others. So he's, 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 he's getting people out of the comfort zone. And, uh, and some people like it, some people like it a little bit less maybe because he also puts the bar higher, you know, for every, every other rider, you know, like if, if just imagine like, you know, you're 30 years old, 32 years old and, you know, like team management always refers back to the 20 year old to say, yeah, "Yeah, but if you would have done like what he has done, you know, maybe it would have been better. If you would have, you know, lived like he lives, maybe it would be better. Mm. And, uh, so for sure, you know, like this is kind of like putting the bar higher within the team Mm. and, uh, certainly what 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 he has done yeah sure and uh, i think that's a very positive thing that's the way how the sport does develop not being like you know like the big guys the old guys keep the young guys you know small but let them grow and let them you know reach new heights and this is how the sports developed and just finally rolf those comments about the time trial setup and um by his spare bike at the Cournot des Nations. Um, you know, I imagine that you, well, you've got a very good relationship with Specialized going back 10 years. You're very involved with um, time trial setup and te- the technical setup of the team generally. Um, were they in any way valid, those criticisms? And do you as a team take anything from those comments or did it not really tell you anything you didn't already know? Oh, well, I, you know, I mean, like some of it makes you really with a little bit, you know, smiling to say, well, it's the same setup, exactly the same setup. Remco Evenepoel is not doing so bad, I would mm. think. <laughs> you know, I mean, the current time trial world champion mm. is using the same setup. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, like I think from that point, it's, like it's really, really hard to argue like the bike is not competitive. The equipment is not competitive. I do know how Quickstep operates because I have been there for four years. You know, a lot of that setup we developed together, you know, because uh, going there after 2011, I think in reality, Quickstep at that time was uh, the best team time trial they have done was 15th. And then the year after we became world champion. Um, and the best individual time trial was literally, you know, what they said from their experience was like, oh, let's go to page two on the result page. And this is where we start looking for our yeah. riders to like winning, like, you know, like uh, two digit numbers of time trials. So, you know, and I don't really see unless they found the magic, uh, magic part there. I don't really see such and such uh, a big difference. World Tour has a really good level overall in preparation and everything. Mm. And and therefore to say, well, talk in general about our time trial setup, um, I think it, it absolutely matches matches mm. other world tour time trial setups and mm. I don't really see where uh, where that uh, where that could be criticized. The Corona de Nation um especially uh, was never really on our schedule and we discussed that in length before the conditions under what conditions we would do it. It was clearly planned to practice. Um, for nothing else, and there was even that scenario talked through to say, well, what happens if, uh, you know, if we have a flat tire or something? And uh, that was very, very clear to say, under what conditions would we go there? And, uh, and, and you know, for that to say, we as a team can say, well, you know, nothing that we did not predict it did not happen. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it is what it is, you know, and, and this is the whole point where come back to the to the thing to say you know it, i just don't want to have it lead now by emotions and disappointments and like you know like 
revenge on like he said this, we said yeah. that. It just makes no sense because I'm not 20 years old. Yeah. I'm not you know, I'm 60 years old. I think I've we seen, established you're not on TikTok and I'm not sure. I've seen, <laughs> seen a lot of people come and go and, yeah. uh, and you know, like, and like, I just don't want to do the same thing to say, well, he said that, I said this, it just makes no sense. I think we know what, what we've done and what we did not do. And we're pretty confident in, you know, in our setup, in our stuff, in our technical suppliers. Because otherwise, yeah, you know, if that would be an eye opener for us and we have to lean back and say, ah, really? Ah, oh, this is new to us. That would be, you know, would be a very, very bad sign for the team. Who knows, Rolf, when I go out to my car at the end of this interview, maybe I'll bump into him in the car park. Maybe he'll have boomeranged back <laughs> from um, the Costa Blanca in the last 24 hours. Through the middle, Philipson trying to get on tabs. Who's going to take the victory? Wow! Jordi Mayus was there. Photograph on the Champs-Élysées between Philipson and Jordi Mayus. Everybody is looking at each other. They don't know who got it. And Rolf, let's move on then and let's just talk about the team in 2023. Um, bit of a debrief. Um, five Grand Tour stage wins, seven World Tour wins, if I'm not mistaken. Um, too few from your point of view as in the team management? Yeah, not happy with the season. Um, you know, and, and I do think whoever knows Ralf also understands that he would address it. Mm. He doesn't have to address it really. It's just more like a confirmation because we all know like, you know, we just like after the 2022 season, we can't be happy. Um, because yes, the victories are still there. If you and look at nice it. There's some nice ones. There's some surprise, some nice surprises in there. May was winning on the Champs-Élysées is a lovely surprise, I suppose. And you know, that's already, you know, I wouldn't call it a lifesaver, but you know, something where I say, well, then, you know, think about if not, um, then we still had Jai in the yellow jersey with that stage wins, also great. Um, but overall, if you see what this team was able to achieve in 2022, and you think, you know, you settle in with new riders and you, you know, like a lot of things become more natural and, uh, you know, as you established protocols, then you have to say there was, you know, definitely no growth. And then we do understand like it wasn't good enough. By saying that, it's not really like blaming to say, yeah, but they didn't do their homework. They didn't do a job or something. There was like, you know, a lot of good reasons for it mm. that um, at that stage we could not avoid. We could not stop. So in March, we had like 16 riders sick at the same time. Right. And then, you know, when they're sick, you have no chance anymore. It's purely yeah. crisis management and you just have to get through it and it is what it is. I was going to go on to talk about the classics because that was, on paper, the classics were a real kind of washout really in terms of results and that is, I guess, part of the explanation that you've just given me that you had 16 riders out in March. Uh, yes and no, but you know, like you also have to say like we talked about, you know, big teams and money and this and that and we clearly... As a team, we had to make a choice to say we want mm. to be a Grand Tour team. We cannot also be a sprinter team with, you know, like everything perfect. We cannot at the same time be experts in cobblestone racing and, you know, really go out and say we would be disappointed if we don't win Flanders and Rube. It's just like, you know, with the resource that we have, it's impossible. And we choose to, to go for Grand Tours. So you have to sacrifice something. Tell me one scenario we would really, you know, go towards the finish line in Ordenade against uh, Wout uh, mm. van Aert, uh, Mathieu van der Poel and Tadej Pogacar. 
There is no scenario. We can anticipate whatever we want to anticipate. We go into the breakaway from kilometer zero. We can, you know, try to ride away before Tynemer. We can do whatever we want to be. There's no scenario where we say, yep, we compete there for the victory. How do you present that to the riders without demotivating them? So what, what, what does the goal become then? Well, the goal becomes there's a lot of other races, you know, like, and one example I give you, like we talked about HTC times and, and Iro times to say, well, you know what? We won three years in a row against Vivelgem. Mm. Why did we win against Vivelgem? Because we put that focus onto those races. You know, was Edward Bossahang, was Bernie Eisel, and was... George? Hinkapi? Nah. No. Mark? No. Marcus Burkhardt. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, three rides where you wouldn't even see as a favorite. Why did we win that? Because the structure of the calendar was that the really big guys, you know, Kanchelara and those guys, they started with lake warmers and they had their trolley at the feed yeah, zone and yeah. they stepped out. Yeah. And then realizing, it's like, okay, guys, you know, yes, Flanders is a big thing and we want to be good there. But we do understand, like, the glory we can take away is not in Flanders. We have to, like, you know, go against, like, the logic um, mm. on these days to say, well, yeah, you you use that as a build-up race for Flanders. You use that as, you know, and you let that race go because it, it would disturb your your recovery. I think you just have to set a different pace for different different races and then, you know, just set different goals. And then you can still be in the mix and in the game because they're not all doing that. But if it comes down to, to Flanders and I speci- specifically take out Roubaix because Roubaix, we know historically is a race where everything can happen. It's mm. like it's rarely that the favorite wins. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's different. You know, there you can you can talk yourself into it. It's like early breakaway that lasts very long. Bad luck for the favorites. You just hang on. You know, everybody crashes, has a flat tire, and suddenly you're there. Mm. And uh, but Flanders, you know, it's, it's it's for sure the hardest race to win because you need to be lucky, but you need to be really good, and you need to be switched on from kilometer zero. Otherwise, you end up in the hospital, mm. or you know, you will be uh, dropped in the gruppetto because you did not approach a critical crime in the front. And uh, so, therefore, we you know we there was accepted. It's not nice because it's wonderful. It's really beautiful races. And, and your, now ra- your races as well, when you were a rider, they were, you know, very much the ra- the races that you enjoyed the most, I think. Well, right it was, uh, to be honest, it was love and hate. You know, first okay. uh, it took me super long. I, I didn't even understand the races. So it mm. was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. And uh, that changed a little bit with Andreas Clear coming in yeah. from a Belgian team, you know, big friend of Peter van Peter Gem and stuff. And, he basically turned us around to kind of like also get me interested into it. And yeah, it was sevens in Flanders, whatever, eights and nines in Roubaix. And like, um, and I like that. And that would have been the only reason for me to go for another year on the bike, the classics, because he also understand, you know, even with high age, with that experience that you do have, you know, there's still something possible. You train super hard in the winter. It's a limited time frame then to say, yeah. okay, you know, I need to get till April. And that was making me thinking to continue. I'm So, yes, at the end of my career, I was into it. At the beginning of my career, it was more on the, mm. let's say, 80% of like Spanish and Italian writers to say, what the hell am I doing here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> why, <laughs> why, why do I get on my bike now in five degrees of rain? Later on, I did love it. Now, by saying that now, you know, like we had this one year, 
but also it's understanding the beauty of the races now with uh, with Heinrich Hausler coming on board. Yeah. You know, he lives and breathes that, and you know, like he uh, he was up for it, he pushed for it. Now for a recon already, you know, he he had a bike, and you know, tire testing and everything. So just now, at beginning of December, he was up there with Jordi. He was up there with Emil Herzog to already do recon, mm-hmm. uh, recon of Robe, recon of Flanders. So we give it a new try uh, with the spirit, with emotions, with f- and with motivation, and try to you know like get our share out of it. And you just mentioned a couple of names there. I guess Haller is a big part of the classics team, and Van Poppel as well. Yeah, but as as said, you know, like Danny is also realistic enough and long enough in the business to say, well, if it if it goes, mm. uh, you know, like uh, against Van der Poel and and and, mm. and Van Aert, it's going to be really really difficult. But we have our chances. I mean, like you know, like also even like once we're up there, um, you know, with Sam Wellsford in the punter, with Jordan in the semi hard ones. I mean, you know, again, Wevelgem is a, is a super you know, super nice race, wonderful race with a lot of you know history. Mm. And I think these races are still so, doable. Yeah, still I was going to say, what what would be your race now? Well, what could be the Gent-Wevelgem to High Road to Bora now? What could be the equivalent of that? Well, I think, you know, our focus definitely is more like uh, Doastoy, so Varagem, yeah. um, or let's exclude, let's exclude it like E3 and Flanders right now at that status. Mm. You know, we try to do something, but realistically, it's going to be, um, you know, super difficult. Every race we go, we want to win. But to see that scenario is how we're going to win Flanders in 24, it's just, it's just a difficult task to see that. Mm. But we still try to get out of it. And maybe it's just a learning effect for Emil Herzog to say, you know what? Not in 24, but in 27, you know, we, we're going to be there. So you're so young, but we get there. So then it's part of the process and still worth to invest a lot and uh, to be ready for it. Mm. Rolf, before we go on to talk about Grand Tours and Primoz, um, I just wanted to ask you about one rider and their 2023. Um, Max Schachmann has had a, a lot of problems, I think, over the last year, more than a year. Um, for those who really haven't followed them and don't really know why his results haven't sort of followed the same trajectory that they were on, just explain that as, to the best of your knowledge. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a doctor, but at the end of the day, it feels like from Tokyo Olympics, he was constantly sick. Um, It was, you know, there was always like a recovery uh, and then there was hope and then there was try again and then you see some improvement. Assorted sicknesses or one particular type of sickness? uh, You know, I think up to now he had like four times COVID. Okay. Um, So, you know, as one example, and then you always get under this time pressure. And also from that, for sure, for 24, we, you know, as always, we always try to learn. We have to try to adapt and try to learn and to say, okay, we need more time. No matter what, as hard it is, it's just rushing makes no sense. And there have been a few occasions where we definitely rushed too much, you know, retrospectively uh, to say, well, you know, he should have trained more and and then not sending him to races. Um but yeah, you know, then then you just start um, and you get sick. So mm. training camp, same place here, like, you know, sick, COVID. So what do you do? Isolate him, you know, have him not riding, do all the medical checks before you clear him riding again. Then it's like mm, so many days to the first race. Yeah, yeah, you know, he's missing the race, uh, the base, but we can still race. And then he's doing the base afterwards, doing the race, immune system down. Um, you know, flying in and out, like getting sick again, like, whoa, okay, now he's semi-okay, 
But what is really needed to prepare the first highlight is an altitude camp going like, you know, kind of like, mm, is he ready? Is he not? Well, we take that risk going to altitude. The altitude didn't work out at all, you know, coming back, getting sick, um, missing that first season highlight and went on and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like a miracle that he still has a spirit. Mm. Because, I was going to ask you, how's his confidence? Because that must also have suffered. Yeah, yeah. But for sure, you know, like, I mean, because he's not just a rider, you know, he lives uh, for winning. Mm. Like, you know, he's not the typical, say, if I can do 90%, I'm happy to help. Mm. Uh, he won 210 Perinis mm. and, you know, and the way he can suffer and everything, he's, if he's on top of the game, now, you know, he had periods where he suffered just to stay on the on uh, in the peloton and then, you know, suffered to hang on, on in, in the gruppetto. And that's not Max Schachmann. And that's mm. like, you know... Nobody wants to do that and nobody wants to see that. So, you know, we as a team don't want to see him suffering so bad. Mm. So new try, uh, new year, and uh, hopefully he stays healthy. I mean, the, the most important thing is like he should stay healthy. He has to stay healthy. While saying that, you know, this winter, like so forced infection, <laughs> you know, just just before coming to camp. So here we go again. But getting stability into his immune system, getting him stable into the season, potentially even saying, yeah, he might be ready, but we're not sure. Probably then we pull him out and say, okay, you know, you're what you better stay, uh, stay home, yeah. keep training. And, uh, and we give you that time because what we learned is like, it's just not successful trying to push it too hard. The cycling podcast for the latest news, views and interviews from the world of professional cycling. So Rolf, we'll move on now to talk about well, the big new signing, the big new arrival of the autumn, uh, Primoz Roglic. Um, when I was trying to establish whether Primoz Roglic had indeed signed for Bora, I tried to tease some information out of you. You were very unhelpful. Um, <laughs> as your job demands you to be, I think you sent me a picture of some cooking equipment, some Bora cooking equipment, but um, I didn't know whether that was to try to put me on the scent or off the scent. Anyway, Rolf, um, tell me about when you first learned that this might be an opportunity, that he might be on the market and he might be interested. Was it at the Vuelta? Because that's what Ralph said when he presented Primoz. Was it already there that you as well knew that maybe it was possible? Well, if it was possible or not, yes. But that was, you know, like um, still another question because it needed also like, you know, the, the agreement from Jumbo Visma. So ultimately we could not have done it uh, without uh, them agreeing to it. That was very clear. And we would have accepted that to say if it's a no, it's a no. But it all appeared to say, well, there's a little bit of unhappiness and there is, you know, willingness to, to you know, to um, to change because of like, you know, that to the front thing that, it's also understandable to say, well, what do you do if 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 you won the tour twice with Jonas Vingegaard and then you have a guy who also wants to have a shot and ask clearly for that shot? I mean, either you kind of like be unhonest to him to say, yeah, yeah, for sure you get the chance just to keep him. Mm. But if you're honest, you know, you have to say like, well, you know, as it states right now, if Jonas is fit and healthy, Jonas has to be the uncompromised leader. However, it turns out to be finally, then um, you know it's, it might be different. So you know that that I can assume how the situation has been there. Um, but then you know, like the question to towards me was more to say, well, do we think that would make sense? Do we think mm -hmm. you know that can be successful? 
as said, you know, really early on, the SEC are not involved into the contract negotiation. And I do think it's also really good for me because at the end of the day, you know, many, many cases where we as directors have to make decisions, you don't want to, don't want to put them on income. Mm. Say, yeah, but he has to be better because he makes 500,000 more than him. So, you know, like he has to perform to his money. That's not what we should do. You know, we should really base our decision on like, how is his condition? What can you really do? How Mm. does it suit for him? And, and all in that whole process was pretty much that was also kind of like to say well you know do we see him in our team do we see this could work what what do we think will happen to the rest of the team you know because for sure it was on very short notice and you know like everybody Mm -hmm. mentally already makes his plan for next year and then suddenly everything changed because you have uh, pretty much rockets coming in So, so that was more like you know the brainstorming that I was involved in uh, to make it happen. Then it's clearly in between, uh, you know, uh, Jumbo Visma and mm. Ralph and 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 uh, pretty much uh, management. Ralph, as a sports manager, what's your personal feeling and thinking about this issue of age curve? Because I hear, and you as well, I'm sure, hear a lot about this, and a lot of it doesn't seem to be backed up by science. You sometimes hear people say, "Oh, well." that rider is going to last a long time because he came to cycling late. But then you have examples like Valverde and Rebellin and people like that. And again, it, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of good science about this. Um, what, what's your thinking about it? Maybe relating to your own personal experience as a rider, but also um, thinking about Primoz and where he is in his age curve. It's it's indeed super difficult, like you say. You know, that it's not scientifically that to say everybody drops from the age of thirty-two. And mm. uh, I think there is like different theories. Like you, you touch point on that to say, well, um, it's probably a lifetime performance. You know, if you really start super super early, um, maybe you have twenty years to go. So there's a difference if you start with ten. Or if you start with 20, because that brings you up to, you know, 40 rather than to 30. You, you believe that? You believe in the theory of miles on the clock? Um, no, I believe also, like, it's heavily related to the mental status. You know, like how long can you cope with pressure? How long you can, can you deal with, you know, that lifestyle? How long does it really attract you? How long do you find it, like, really, really, like, you know, like, um, pumping you up to go to Tour of Flanders? And, and I think what, what, I took an example, and maybe I'm completely wrong in that, but from looking from the outside where you sometimes do see this matches was take uh, Pozzato. So he turned pro when he was 19, mm. super young, and he was like absolutely enthusiastic about the sport, mm. and he was like, you know, and he had a great, a great career. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong, but I think there was a mismatch because he was physically not ready when he was 19 turning pro, just physically not there to do the biggest races, mm. you know, the super long races. But when he was physically ready, he was mentally tired. Mm. I've seen the Posato, like when you think like, this is not the motivation that you need to have to win these races. Yeah, Physically, for sure, he's ready with the, with the mileage, but mentally he's over his peak. He drops down. He still is doing the sport. He loves the sport, but this kind of like let's say, willingness to die for that result is not there anymore. Mm. And I do think there, this is a difficulty, and this is why I do think it's not really the age. It's like how long can somebody keep that, you know, that momentum, that mm. like, I love what I do, I, I, you know, I want to prove myself. And for sure it's a difference to say, well, you know what, 
it's my 12s to a Flanders. Like, it's nothing new anymore. You did it in the rain. Mm. You did it with north wind, with east wind, with west wind, with cold, with hot. It was under every condition, you know, and you had your your chance. But what is really new to it? What is really kind of like the, the stuff that makes you, you know, falling to sleep really bad and you have mm. this, this positive, um, you know, like tension in your body when you get to the start line. Um, what is really left from that and how long can you carry that on? And that brings me then to Primoz to say, well, here, like how, as much as I know him for now, it's like he has this energy, you know, this super positive energy that he engages with people, that he shows interest, that he wants to have wheels to test for the gravel stage in the Tour de France, that he has that, that he's not like that guy of like, yeah, have mm. done it, have seen it, you know, like, and this also, I think, keeps all of us alive because, you know, also like it's going to be my 32nd 30 second, uh, 30 second Tour de France. So what still drives me mm. is really kind of like, well, maybe it's the first time I can be part of management to win the Tour de France. It was twice in the, you know, as a rider, as a winning team with, uh, with Reese and with Ulrich. But being part of like planning that whole thing gives you another kick. And you feel like, yeah, if that makes me working, you know, two hours more a day, I will do it because that's new. And this is writer's age. Well, maybe not that relevant how old you are, but like how, let's say, how young are you in your, in, on your yeah. mental state? How, how hungry are you in your brain? I guess you spent a little bit of time around him the last few days. Um, maybe you've got a, a bit of a sense of how he's going to interact with the team. But just in terms of what we see from now until the Tour de France, I think, is there going to be a big departure from what we saw Jumbo Visma try with him? You know, I'm thinking about the length of the altitude camps and the fact that he would quite often um, end his al his last altitude camp pretty close to the start of a Grand Tour. Um, it, has he asked for you to sort of rethink anything in the way he's going to prepare the Tour de France? Now, for now, it's it's not like absolutely equal to it, um, but it's pretty. It's going to be pretty similar. Um, but of course, we talk a lot about it, and it's not only him. We also have you know his coach on board, so yeah. it comes a lot of experience from that as well from Mark. And uh, you know, I do think you know we try to mix the, our experience and what he what he wants and what he has done so far and try to get him out there as best as possible. But not specifically to say we try to reinvent the the world. I mean, like, he, you know, the facts speak for itself to say uh, credit to the team, credit to him, to say every race that he started till the Vuelta was won by him. So, yeah, I mean, you know, like, what else can you can you ask for? So, you know, there's, there's nothing you can really say, like, well, that was completely wrong. And... Uh, still like you know it does not mean like if you do the same you have the same results we're also fully aware of that so there might be slight changes there um the good thing is like if you ask if 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 you talk to him like he would love to win every race he would you know like there's like open like let's say open builds with race that he didn't win that he wants to go there and this is why not we, many not many that i can think of well he managed to of switzerland for example he said like he never won to a swiss he would love to win it now is that this the year that we really want to go in there you know trying to win two of switzerland or rather say like well you know what what is our real goal here mm. is it really two of switzerland is it really that we say you know like we do compromise july and the tour de france by trying to win two of switzerland or is two of switzerland that you absolutely able to you know win after winning the Tour de France. You know, why not going as a defending Tour de France champion 
to Switzerland and tried to win that. So, um, so I, you know, but there will be new goals for him. I think World Championships really interest him. Um, um, but everything is unchanged concerning the Tour de France. So it's his dream. That's our dream. And uh, we put everything in for him. And just last thing on Primoz, Rolf, um, secrets that he might bring from Jumbo Visma. Now, again, I had this conversation with riders and teams in the past, even going back to your day and uh, US Postal and T-Mobile, there were members of staff that moved in one direction or the other. Sometimes they said yes, um, that person was able to bring secrets and tell us things about the way Armstrong worked or vice versa. Sometimes I've heard it said that no, it doesn't work like that. Um, is the th- are the things that Primus can help with in terms of mm, bringing some of Jumbo methodology with a view to hopefully beating them? I think sometimes what they just bring is confirmation. Um, mm. Confirmation to say, well, actually what we do is the right thing to do. Um, because, you know, whatever you do, you always have a little bit, yeah, maybe, you know, doubts. Mm. And if then somebody like, you know, Mark uh, Lumpets and, and Primoz come and say, well, this is how we do it. And it li- literally matches like 95% of yeah. our philosophy, our performance philosophy, you know. We just wrote it down to try to, you know, like really formalize things and like hand it mm. out to the writers that they understand how we want to do things. And, and, uh, and then it's just a confirmation, which also gives you a lot of, peace and and you know calmness to say well you know actually there's no huge miracle there and i also think because you know like a lot of people in the scientific world you know they work work on their phds and you do find a lot of stuff if you just read if you just look for papers you know you do find a lot of scientific background that comes out of corporations to say well you know like Jumbo works with Eindhoven with a wind tunnel there with Professor Blocken. They work together with uh, with Professor Haspel, which I know personally from the Quick Step days. And you know, there's a lot of publications there mm. to say, well, you know, an error work on this, on that. And then you just feel like pretty confident to say, okay, what mm. we do is is uh, is the right way that we that we're moving in the right direction. I just thought I'd ask you about, well, a week ago, 10 days ago, it was Jan Ulrich's um, 50th birthday and there was a lot of, well, a lot of interviews, there was a lot of talk in the German media because, well, he was promoting his new documentary that's since been released on um, Amazon in which he finally, well, he gives a, a sort of open, I would say an open kind of hearted confession um, and I think we were all delighted to see that he seems to be doing really well. And you could tell from the way he was talking and the way he was presenting himself that his life to a certain extent has been um, turned around or he's turned it around. Um, Rolf, when you made your sort of confession um, way back in 2006, it, well, since then, it's, it seemed like you very quickly sort of made peace with it. And you've gone on to have a completely different life and a successful career in management. But, you know, going back and looking at what you said at the time, you you said in one interview that for your friends and family members, it was like the sky falling in, which gives a sense of it was traumatic for you as well. Um, I just wanted to ask you, what did you feel? I don't know if you watched the documentary, but you will have followed some of um, everything that surrounded the documentary. And what did you feel seeing Jan finally... Um, unload that burden yeah finally i mean you know the the right thing is probably finally um i think what's the title of the of the documentary the yachters or you know like the the, hunted the hunted which is like well also part of it he he made himself to being hunted 
because he could have stopped that hunting a lot earlier. That was his personal choice to say, you know, I continue that way. And he went through all the, you know, the dark things. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, uh, like let's start where, where I have been then in 2007. For me, it was just to say, well, if I want to be part of the sport and the sport needs to change, I just need to need to say how it has been because otherwise I'm in front of like my, my young riders and what do I do? I lie into their face. I promote a change that is absolutely needed, but why is it needed? I've never seen anything. And, you know, it was kind of like funny at that time because being uh, in 2007 already in management there with Telecom, going to some of the team manager meetings, and, you know, everybody's talking about this needed changes and we need to change the sport. But if you ask specifically, nobody had experience, nobody had seen anything, nobody was part of anything, which is uh, this is not going to work. You know, how can we how can we realistically ask for a change and like, you know, that massive need for a change to address it if we all deny the truth to say it's just not, you know, it's just uh, but not me, everybody else, but not me. So, you know, there was that need if I wanted to be part of the sport and needed to, to do that step. Uh, definitely not easy, definitely not nice. Definitely a big misjudgment also on our side. We thought it would go away much quicker. We thought it's going to be, you know, big news. Everybody made us aware of it to say this is going to be, you know, a big explosion. We knew that that would happen. We accepted it for ourselves. Um, but what we did not expect was like every time it started to calm down again, there was a uh, a new disaster coming in. You know, then it was whatever Patrick Zinkovitz tested yeah. positive. So, you know, it just kept on going for, for much, much, much longer. Six or seven years. Yeah. Than we ever expected. And uh, yeah, if you ask my wife, she's, uh, she's probably right about it. I wouldn't say like, you know, it just, I left it behind. Because it's still that she's like, well, you still have this strange way of acting in public that you say, you know, you avoid that. So, you know, I wouldn't really necessarily like to go to any kind of like gala official really? stuff. Okay. Um, is that more in Germany though? Because in Germany, the attitude towards it is different, I think. Yeah, yeah. And you always, you know, you always feel it. I mean, like I still like think like, how do people look at me? Um, it's not that I specifically bother about it too much, to be honest, mm. but I do think about it. And that probably even like affects some of my decisions to say, well, you know, like, I'm, like I mean, I do TV commentary, but I'm not on camera. So, you know, I'd like to give my expertise across, but I'm not really the, you know, the guy, the face of anything. Um, and I do like to give my knowledge, you know, back to the sport. And I do like to drive those changes that I think the sport really, you know, made in a really, really good way. And we all have to stay awake. We just shouldn't say like, you know, all problems solved, like happy life, but, uh, you know, keep awareness. So I do think I can have a lot of positive impact. But yeah, for me or myself, you know, I just uh, can't forget and, uh, you know, my, my own personal history. And I do think like people who know me before and afterwards do ch see a change in, in behavior. I definitely mm. had a behavior change, um, you know, That's from really interesting because as I say, from the outside, you're, to me, you're the exemplar of someone who did it seamlessly and as easily as it could be done. Um, in the sense also chronologically from the moment when you confess to you taking on the new or, t or carrying on your role at T-Mobile the, the, it was weeks months um, you didn't disappear and it's the absolute opposite of what we've seen with Jan for example 
Yeah, yeah, but why was that possible? And I do think maybe also, you know, try to build a bridge to Jan. Then it's like I had such a strong backing from Bob Stapleton at that time, you know, because he was very, very clear to say, okay, you know, he was shocked what happened, you know, and uh, but it was also clear to say if we clean that up now, we clean it up together, and then I stand behind you. We just can't have any, you know, dark secrets out there anymore where we go again and again and again. So. Like that super strong backing that I would 100%, you know, be able to count on to say, well, if Bob says, like, I do not doubt your job, even if the, you know, at that time, the vice president of the IOC, who is now president of the IOC, uh, Dr. Bach, like, questions I should ever have a job in the sport again, Bob said, like, I do not care about what he thinks mm. because I have a company that runs a cycling team and you are the best person to run that on the sporting side. Now, after like, you know, everything is set, we move on in life. So mm. that backing from Bob Stapleton, from my family then, from, you know, from my wife at that time to say, well, you know what, like we fully understand that. We can't make it undone anymore, but now we move on. Gave me that, you know, strength to act the way I acted. Mm. Now, is was it always easy or what? You know, it's a long time ago now to say, well, for sure, you know, like you feel uncomfortable to say, oh, again, there's a microphone somehow, somewhere. And you need to keep some distance, um, you know, in between yourself and, and, and media and public. And it's clear to say, well, you know, no matter how it fades away, there will be people who understand it, people who forgive you. And then we're people that will, you know, like kind of like hate you for the rest of your life. Uh, but, you know, that's something I really got kind of over to say, well, you know, but would they ever do I want them as my mm -hmm. friends? Mm -hmm. Do I want them surrounding me? Not really, so why would I bother too much about it? But you do think about it, like mm. behavior changes, what I said. And then you see Jan, who kind of like, I think he had like a lot of like uh, visual support, but I don't think that was on a strong, um, a strong base. So, you know, there was a lot of people who actually benefiting from him. So all the people who were with him were benefiting from him rather than supporting him. That's how I see it. And then, you know, then it's also really, really a different thing. Mm. So if he really would have decided to say, well, you know, I do the same thing in 2007, 8, whenever, 10, whatever he decided, I think he would be pretty much on his own. Mm. You know, there was nobody. There was nobody then for him like Bob Stapleton has been there for me. Like, uh, and, and, and I do think that made him probably really doubting, doubting, doubting. And, we know it from the bike, you know, we have seen it. If you remember the tour 96, 97, then it was Bjarne Ries mm. backing him, mm. pushing him, making decisions for him. Um, and, uh, and now Jan won his own, was on his own and he kept on going, going, going. But, you know, it was eating on him. Or mm. For sure it was eating him from the inside. And, uh, and then we all know what did happen. And uh, so it's just good to see now that he seems to be very stable for now and, that's the only wish that I do have is like, you know, let's, let's hope that he can maintain that. Let's hope he does not rush into public too much, too quickly, mm. you know, with, with taking on too much. And, uh, and hopefully then, you know, he, like he can live his life, whatever that means for him to so say what he really wants to do with it. You know, I, I heard an interview that he said, well, you know, I feel like cycling, I found the love of cycling back. I think that's really, really important. What I do not, you know, listening carefully to it to say, well, I heard a couple of times, like, 
I sacrificed my my youth for cycling, mm. which like and there we are completely different also, and that made it also easier for me to continue because I feel like I never sacrificed anything mm. for my career, for cycling. I I can't really remember days where I say I hate to be on the bike, not in races, not in training. Not anyhow, and 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 that kind of like is dramatic for me. If if you look back at your life, and you really believe like I sacrificed my youth for the sport because I didn't, mm. I didn't, I enjoyed it. You know, it, it gave was, you gave it, you a big part of your yeah, life. Yeah, it gave me you know gave me literally everything. It yeah. defines who I am, um, the sport, and uh, and that's kind of like shocking. I really hope now if he says like I found the love for cycling again. That's a complete different approach, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's just really difficult difficult to say I you know, I sacri- sacrificing something is like it means to me it's like I don't want to do it, but I know I have to do it. Mm. So you force yourself into something that you don't enjoy day by day by day. Maybe that's a normal thing for eighty people going to the office, going to the factory. But you know, they also do not uh, you know, like suffer on a hundred and ninety heart rate and crash and break yeah. collarbones and arms and legs usually. Uh, um, if they do, they have uh, you know the time to recover and like, um, but that's different to professional sports. So really, feeling sacrificing something is different to like I enjoy what I do. You know, I I feel like I feel lucky in my life to to have the chance to do it, and I really hope that Jan then you know just goes out, rides his bike, looks at the nature reflects about his life you know figures out what he wants to do and then and then moves on because you know with whatever happens happens and you know like shocking pictures like the way he 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 showed himself then you know under drugs and alcohol and everything um deep inside he's a very good person he's a very good person and uh, he doesn't do anything bad to anybody so you know like for sure to say you know there's there's no reason to kind of like um you know be against him, be negative about him. We have done mistakes, he has done mistakes, and I, you know, I do think we have to point out much more to say it was not right what we have done, rather than everybody has done it. Uh, mm-hmm. It does not make it right. So, mm-hmm. you know, as many times as we say we believe, like most have done it, everybody has done it, which I think really discredits the, the writers who did write clean. It mm-hmm. really discredits, and even if like everybody has done it. It does not make it better. It was still wrong. It was still breaking the rules. And we have to face it and we have to accept that. You know, like it, it's not an excuse because if there's a speed limit, uh, you know, like yeah. you, get a, you get a ticket from the speed camera, you cannot go there and see it. But everybody drove 120 in a zone of 80. It does not make it better. No. You still drove 120. So, you know, yeah. you have to, have to live with the consequences. Mm. So, um, you know, but that's what you realize also. It's like we have to be really careful with making it easy for ourselves by arguing and say, yeah, but it was a time. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And it's an explanation, but it's not an excuse. It's, no. it's, that's, I think there's a big difference. We can explain why it happened, but mm. it's still not an excuse. We still have to look into, into the mirror and into people's faces mm. and say, yeah, I've done a mistake and it was wrong. Mm. It, nothing makes it right. It, it seems, and hopefully, just the act of explaining, though, rather than looking for excuses, ex- excuses, sorry, has at least given him some relief. Um, just laying everything out in the same way that you said you had. Um, Rolf, I, I'm going to have to let you get back to your meetings. You're a very busy man at this Bora um, training camp. We're in a meeting room here, and 
the tactics for this year's Tour de France were all written up on the whiteboard um, next to us. Um, we were, well, I was trying to dissect them earlier. But Rolf, just before you go, I wanted to ask you one last thing. It's a topic that I've often visited and revisited with you. Mark Cavendish, you have a, a long-standing um, relationship, very successful working relationship with Mark Cavendish at one time. Um, I saw you at the screening of his documentary in late summer and we were chatting about whether he would or wouldn't retire. He's not going to retire now. He is going to ride um, a last year. I remember you saying something that evening when we talked about his winters and how, uh, correct me if I'm, if I'm misremembering this, but I think you said something along the lines of in his career that there was a little bit of a rhythm of good winter and then relax a bit the next winter and and then you know two years later another good winter and so on and so forth and that obviously now he couldn't afford to do that um it looks as though i haven't seen him too much this winter but it looks as though he's taking the right approach to this winter would you say well i really hope so um i have just spoken to him like i think twice this winter so not like you know leave him alone i've seen some something that he might go to colombia and altitude training and I do think, you know, like what changes also is like last year he thought like it's going to be his last year and the last winter. So that drove him. I think now an extra motivation is he has a team around him. So if you look at the signings, you know, if you see like at what they've done in Astana, mm-hmm. they they do put a lot of trust and faith mm-hmm. into him. It's also some kind of clever because what else story do you have if you're not financially not at the level of Ineos at UAE, whatever, you know, maybe it is clever to say, well, there's a story out there and that's Mark Cavendish and let's try to get the best out of it. You know, Mark Renshaw being back as, you know, one of the sport director group there and, uh, you know, like the riders that they, that they hired is a very, very clear signal to support him. Last year, it felt a little bit like it's my last chance, my last year, I have to do this. But it also felt a little bit like charity to sign him. Mm. To say, ah, yeah, you know what, that poor mm. guy, we just can't let him down. And Vino is a very traditional rider, so he has respect for, you know, history in cycling. And it really felt like a bit like this is charity. It's like, you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but he deserves that spot yeah, build, now it build fe- a monument to Mark yeah, Cavendish yeah. yeah but now it feels like an investment and I do think that should create extra motivation for him to to get to his goal to to break this record and then you know to to happily retire and I think this is hopefully that extra layer of motivation that he gets good lean to the winter with the basic work that he has to do and like with a with a very clear focus I was going to say Mark Cavendish on the top step of the podium on the Champs-Élysées, Primoz Roglic on the top step of the GC podium. But of course, that's impossible because the last stage of the Tour de France is going to be in Nice. But that would be nice for Primoz, wouldn't it? Because he lives just down the road. Um, Rolf, you've been extremely generous with your time and um, illuminating as always. And well, I'll thank you on behalf of all the listeners. Thank you very much. and Have a great season, Rolf. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.